You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you so soon after the last episode, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, I was out in Midtown New York today, and the traffic has gotten a little better um, <laughs> after uh, UN week. And uh, that's actually what we'll be talking about today, uh, just for our uh, listeners. Um, so Prashant and I decided that it might be a good time to reflect on the week that was here in New York City with various world leaders and foreign ministers converged here in Turtle Bay at the United Nations for the 73rd General Assembly general debate. Um, and it's been eventful. There have been uh, big headlines certainly to come out of the whole affair and um, a lot of Asia-specific issues that we want to talk about. But uh, just to lay out the agenda for the podcast, uh, so you can skip ahead if you're interested in one specific issue, but we'll be talking about Donald Trump's curious claim at the Security Council session that China was interfering in the upcoming U.S. midterm elections. We'll talk a bit about that and what exactly might be going on there. We'll talk a bit about the breakdown in India-Pakistan talks, which actually happened right before the um, General Assembly began. Uh, and then we can talk a bit about Indian Foreign Minister, um, External Affairs Minister, sorry, uh, Sushma Swaraj's speech at the UN and the Pakistani reactions. Uh, then we'll talk a bit about Mahathir Mohammed, the Malaysian Prime Minister, the 93-year-old, his sort of coming out uh, at the UN this year as a uh, as Asia's sort of new elder statesman, which is something that people have been calling him. I don't know if that is really... Uh, something that Mahathir merits, but he certainly had some big ideas. I, I actually got to see him speak here in New York, and he had a lot to say about the future of uh, Asian geopolitics. We'll talk a bit about that. And uh, finally, we'll close out with a discussion of the North Korean foreign minister speech, which was quite interesting. Um, all right. So uh, without wasting any more time, um, Prashant, so Trump has accused China of attempting to meddle in the upcoming U.S. 2018 midterm elections. We're about six weeks away from those elections. This is a pretty big claim. As far as I could tell, there was no real concrete evidence offered of what exactly he was alleging. And then at a press conference later, he said that I can't tell you right now, but we will release evidence that has not yet happened. I have a theory about what Trump is talking about, but I want to ask you first about what you think was going on here. So what what should we make of this claim that China is meddling in the uh, upcoming uh, midterm elections? Yeah, it, it's pretty difficult to sort of actually assess the claim, as you pointed out. Um, our, our editor-in-chief, uh, Shannon Tiazzi, wrote a really good piece on this uh, on the site about how Trump really never offered any kind of specific evidence. The evidence he did offer subsequently was evidence that the Chinese were placing ads in, in newspapers and the like. But these are things that we've seen you know, multiple times from various governments, not uh, excluding China. He also did mention that there's some confidential sort of intelligence that he can't really share with us at this point in time. Um, and that may well be true. I mean, the Chinese have been in, uh, involved in influence operations and other propaganda activities to undermine and influence elections before. I mean, the, through the region and, and across several countries, right? I mean, th this is, you know, we've talked about it in the context of, we had an episode on election interference and influence operations. And there have been cases in Cambodia, there have been cases in Australia. But until that doesn't change the fact that until we have concrete evidence, it's really difficult to evaluate uh, the ex the extent and the substance of the claims. The other aspect of this that's interesting is is the timing, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if this is coming, on, you know, just ahead of the midterm elections, and and we all know that 
Trump likes to seize on these issues, and for, including foreign policy issues, for his domestic political gain for, for elections. And so while we do see this pressure campaign on China, and it, you know, it, it does make sense on some level to link it with other Trump administration moves that we've seen really across the board over the past few weeks, it doesn't automatically mean that this claim can explicitly be linked to that and that Trump is seizing on it for that motivation. There's also a domestic political motivation. And I suspect that that is what the Chinese will kind of focus on rather than the foreign policy aspect of this. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think you're onto, onto something. I mean, I think I share the same theory as you here. I think there's a bit of taxonomical confusion going on with how we talk about various measures that China might be taking in the United States. So on, on the one side, you know, we do have um, influence operations or measures, whatever you want to call them. Uh, the most worrying of these, in my view, are the covert measures that China pursues in a variety of countries, including in the United States. And these I would more describe as attempts for China to meddle in American democracy, which is different from interfering in U.S. elections. Uh, and I think that's actually a pretty important distinction, right? The election process, the mechanisms that exist there, you know, sort of um, tampering with voting machines or uh, altering vote counts, things like that, come to people's minds, and those can be very harmful. So that kind of claim, I think, needs to be very carefully um, regulated. And when Trump was making this claim, let's also recall that, you know, he has long been prone to argue. He has acknowledged that Russia was involved in meddling in the 2016 U.S. elections, although he still kind of goes back and forth on that issue. Mm -hmm. But on the same side, you know, he's always made the argument that, oh, well, it could have been someone else. It could have been China. It could have been the 400 pound man. So now, again, I think raising the prospect of China interfering in the upcoming election with a kind of concerted campaign kind of helps also take the heat up, heat off a bit on the uh, Russia issue, which has been a domestic nagging issue for him. Um, but I think in this case also, you know, uh, the day before he made these remarks at the Security Council, uh, he did tweet about the um, adver um, the ads in Iowa uh, placed by China Daily, right? And China Daily has been doing this for years. It's been appearing in the Washington Post. And it's really been a longstanding Chinese practice, these kinds of ads. And these aren't covert attempts to really influence opinion, right? It's, right. it's clearly labeled that this is paid for by China Daily, which is um, a part of, I guess they don't actually disclose that these are state-run newspapers. But to anybody who follows Asia, we, we know that, you know, these are state-run media ads that are, advertised as such in U.S. newspapers. And uh, Terry Branstad, the uh, ambassador, um, the U.S. ambassador in China and former governor of Iowa, uh, actually has also raised this issue now uh, with the Chinese government uh, directly. So it seems that this is turning into an issue. Um, but I think it's a far cry from what is really meant when most people think about election interference per se. So I think the claim that China is interfering in the midterm elections has less evidence, but certainly covert and overt attempts to influence American democracy. I think there's a lot more there. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, should we move on to uh, India and Pakistan? Yeah, sounds good. All right. So that, okay. So there's been a lot going on in South Asia that we uh, haven't really been talking about. We did talk about it a bit when we talked about Imran Khan on the podcast. Uh, so Pakistan has a new prime minister, Imran Khan, who, as many Pakistani civilian leaders do when they come into office, uh, extended an olive branch to India in his inaugural address as prime minister. He said if India takes even one step towards Pakistan, Pakistan will take two steps towards India. And this got a lot of people very excited that there might be a new prospect for peace. India and Pakistan have been in a deep freeze of sorts since 2016 when the uh, Uri attacks happened. Almost exactly two years ago, uh, India carried out what it called surgical strikes, a cross-border raid on militants in Pakistan after the Uri attack, which was the most deadly attack on Indian troops um, in, in almost two decades at the time. Um, so the 
so the deep freeze has now um, gotten. I mean, essentially, we're we're back right where we started because uh, after a seeming attempt between the two sides to um, set up talks between the two foreign ministers on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly, things fell apart after an Indian Border Security Force um, personnel member was um, mutilated by militants in Kashmir, which immediately led India to cancel the talks. In fact, I think it was a 24-hour turnaround mm -hmm. between the time that the two sides announced that they would be holding talks on the sides of the General Assembly before India canceled the talks. And the Ministry of External Affairs in India released a very uh, atypically harshly worded statement uh, saying that, you know, Pakistan's evil plans have been revealed to the world and sort of personally condemning Imran Khan, which, of course, the Pakistanis reciprocated. And then at the General Assembly, we had a firebrand speech from Indian External Affairs Minister Shishma Swaraj making the same point that Pakistan was harboring terrorists and um, really kind of taking a swing at the Imran Khan government. So for now, it really looks like rather quickly, the new Pakistani government's efforts to pursue any kind of talks with India have been dashed. Um, but, you know, did you um, did you find this uh, in any, you know, I mean, sadly, a lot of this can be pretty predictable, right? A lot of Indian commentators have alleged that, you know, this is the classic civil military divide and issue, um, issue in Pakistan, that while the civilian leadership might have been interested in pursuing talks, the military is sort of working behind the scenes to sort of encourage militant groups to uh, torpedo these talks by carrying out further cross-border raids on India. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is, um, as you said, I mean, a, a repetition of previous tensions that we've seen between the two countries. I mean, I think I think it is interesting because we, we've talked about Imran Khan and, and his new government um, in, in Pakistan and the new dynamics at play there. And then you have India also gearing up for an election on, on their side as well, right? So it is interesting that these tensions that are, you know, quite old in terms of their flavor and, and their nature playing out in terms of new political dynamics in the two countries. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised given how India and Pakistan are and India-Pakistan uh, ties are that, you know, sometime next year we may be talking about a, a warmer relationship after both sides kind of sort out these issues. But I do agree. I mean, the... The comments that um, were offered by both sides, I mean, the, there were headlines all over the place talking about, you know, how harsh the attacks were by both sides, um, bringing up all kinds of issues, you know, Kashmir, terrorism, all across the board, really. So um, it, it is a particularly uh, jarring development. Yeah, and I think the election issue, um, which I wanted to get to, is really important. Um, India is going to have another general election in May 2019. And as soon as you know, as soon as we heard that Imran Khan was extending an olive branch to India, I mean, I kind of thought that, look, with the election environment, the uh, the Bharatiya Janta Party, the right wing uh, Hindu nationalist party at the center in India, has incentives to drum up tensions with Pakistan. Um, it particularly will help with uh, drumming up votes and nationalist fervor in the northern parts of the country. And I think now we're sort of starting to see that come to play as well, right? Um, yep. Speaking of the surgical strikes earlier, India just had a uh, effective celebration of the surgical strikes, and the defense minister was denying today that this is any attempt to politicize those attacks. And those attacks have been pretty badly politicized. The, the central government really paraded them as evidence of its resolve to stand up against Pakistani terrorism. And I think from here until May, there's really no real scope for things to improve. And Imran Khan might have actually made things worse because his reaction was actually quite personally directed. He, uh, you know, he said, all my life, I've come across small men occupying big offices directed at Modi, who do not have the vision to see the larger picture. So he's really taken a personal swipe here at the Indian prime minister. So 
it, it, it will take a while, I think, but you know, we know how the ebbs and flows here go. Um, and, but I think for now through the first half of 2019, we're probably in for just the same, you know, just a, a more of the same when it comes to India, Pakistan relations, uh, since that post 2016 status quo. Uh, yeah. but yeah, this general assembly, I think really, uh, put this on show. Um, I think first people expected that, oh, this would be an opportunity to break through the impasse that's been in place since then. But now I think it's really um, reinforced things and we're unlikely to get any serious change in the situation there. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move on to um, next item on the agenda, which is Mahathir. Um, so this was kind of his coming out to the world again, I guess, as the 93-year-old former prime minister, now prime minister again. Uh, how do you think he uh, performed at the UN this year, Prashant? I, I think, you know, it, it was interesting to, to hear his remarks um, and, and then the various engagements that he did, too. I mean, you're right. This was kind of his big international coming out party, and, and he prepared uh, well for this. He had a number of engagements, a couple of think tank engagements. You mentioned the CFR one, which you attended, um, you know, interactions with business leaders to boost foreign direct investment into Malaysia, and then also his big UNGA speech. I think he, the speech as well as his engagements really gave gave a view and, and gave a sense that you know, his views, which have been, you know, very long, long held, um, haven't really changed mm -hmm. of the world, whether it's with respect to um, the position of developing countries relative to developed countries, um, you know, his tough stance on Israel-Palestine, which really came out in his uh, UNGA remarks. Um, and then also the, the, you know, his first bilateral meeting was, was with Iran, um, officially on the agenda. And so you did see a number, I think, of points of tension um, with the United States that were clearly at play there, which I think also explains why, you know, it might be a little bit too premature for a Trump-Mahadir meeting. I suspect there would have been a lot of uh, fireworks had that been taken place. He's also been kind of trading, you know, sort of these insults. So, I mean, President Trump hasn't really said anything about Mahadir. Actually, it's been kind of one way, just Mahadir saying, you know, why would I bother meeting with somebody who changes his mind, you know, three times in 24 hours and the right. like. Um, I think what is interesting is, I mean, even though his views haven't changed, I mean, you know, Malaysia's position has changed significantly domestically, I and mean, it's got a lot of issues to address domestically, and the region has changed too. I mean, he's been a big advocate of this sort of Asia-first uh, notion where, you know, J Japan, Malaysia, and other countries can work together at the expense of Western countries, but now China's weight in Asia is so much greater than Japan and these other countries. So I, I do think, you know, you have this interesting juxtaposition between his fixed views, but a very changed Malaysia, a very changed region, and a very changed global mindset yeah i mean certainly in the years that he's been uh out of the top office in malaysia things really have changed uh in the region i will say a few things about his remarks at cfr which was a pretty interesting conversation since he came prepared to just talk about asian geopolitics broadly and you know this was a 93 year old uh guy right i mean he's been around for a while in asia and he's incredibly spry for his age by the way it's, it's really remarkable to see in person um, he kind of is just like whip fast and reacting to things. But yeah, I mean, you know, first on the issue of Trump, he was pretty clear. Um, you know, he specifically said that Trump doesn't know much about Asia. And yeah, the consistency issue was really big for Mahathir. Um, when asked about, you know, what he would ask Trump to do to be more um, useful in Asia, I mean, he pretty much said to be more consistent. So he's, I mean, speaking kind of plainly, I suppose when you're 93, you can kind of do that. Um, so Mahathir, uh, you know, definitely came prepared to talk about Trump. 
Um, but what was interesting is also just the way he talked about some of the other issues, right? We've talked a lot about Mahathir's um, sort of recalibration of Malaysia's relationship with China. And speaking at CFR, you know, he tried to make it clear that China wasn't the problem. It was Najib. Uh, so he said that, you know, he had conveyed this to the Chinese that we're reviewing these projects, not because we're inherently skeptical of China's role in Asia, but because of Najib and his sort of relationship with the Chinese and his sort of corruption more generally. Um, but, you know, he kind of made clear that Malaysia recognized that China was undoubtedly a large force in Asia. And he sort of had this begrudging respect for China's size and influence in Asia, which I think is interested and um, interesting and maybe gets lost in some of the more mainstream coverage of Malaysia's decision making around the canceled BRI projects and, and the likes. You know, I mean, it's not an indication that Malaysia is going to irrevocably sort of drift away from China. Um, Mahathir certainly didn't give that impression at all. Uh, and we actually saw a bit of that when it came to the South China Sea, which he also addressed uh, Malaysia's position on. Um, although I'm not sure about who was briefing him because, you know, he kept uh, he kept arguing that China had made no measures to sort of restrict the movement of warships in the South China Sea, which is just not true, uh, as we just saw with this recent freedom of navigation operation that the U.S. conducted. Um, mm -hmm. But he, you know, he was arguing against the U.S. kind of overusing warships in its South China Sea diplomacy. So... I, I read that as sort of a veiled criticism of the freedom of navigation approach. Uh, he sort of, you know, made the claim that warships beget more warships and it really leads to circular militarization, which is actually quite similar to the argument that the Chinese make. Um, I mean, the big bang, though, and I'd love to hear your impressions on this, was his remark at CFR that um, he would support some kind of UN protection force uh, over the Rohingya issue. Um, that was a pretty big claim and you know, kind of got gasps in the room when he said it, uh, but it really kind of went nowhere from there. And the Rohingya, uh, you know, the uh, the fate of the Rohingya was a major issue at the UNGA. Um, Bangladeshi Prime Minister uh, Sheikh Hasina made it a huge part of her speech. Um, but do you see Malaysia sort of taking this somewhere? I mean, Mahathir really seems to be getting at something radical here that could make the fall summitry with ASEAN leaders quite awkward when he will meet uh, Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, but what do you think is going on here with Malaysia's um, position on the Rohingya? Yeah, his uh, address at, at the UN, I think he made reference to the Rohingya as well. And, and I, I think he made an explicit mention that, you know, this has been the, this genocide has been ignored by even by a Nobel Peace Laureate. Um, and so you're right. I mean, this is a very striking uh, criticism from, you know, a fellow member of, of ASEAN. Right. Especially given that Mahathir has been, you know, several times before has kind of accused other countries of interfering in Malaysia's own domestic affairs yeah. um, as well. Um, yeah, I, I do think that was quite striking. And, and he's mentioned that in a, in a number of forums as well. I mean, it's important to note here, though, that um, it, it Mahathir, you know, I think he's operating under the assumption that with a lot of these uh, foreign policy speeches and remarks he's giving, I mean, he's only got two more years um, under the current agreement that he struck with Anwar, right? And of course, we don't really know if he's going to uh, sort of at least follow that to the T, but, um, and I'm kind of more interested in finding out, I mean, we, we've seen what Najib said with respect to the Rohingya. He also adopted kind of a tough view. Mother has done the same thing. I wonder whether Anwar will share a lot of these views, you know, with respect to mm -hmm. uh, the Rohingya, with respect to China. He's been less outspoken on that, um, but he's very politically calculating as well. But you're right. I mean, one of the striking things with respect to Mahathir was just this this notion of Malaysia as an Islamic country really came across in all of his engagements. I think at the Asia Society, too, like he portrayed this as sort of he was asked about education in Malaysia. And his big takeaway was 
you know, we're losing our values. You know, as a Muslim country, we need to teach our young people values. And people were just kind of struck at that he picked that out uh, in, in terms of all the education reforms that could be advocated for Malaysia. And then, you know, Rohingya, Israel, Palestine, Iran, across yeah. the board, really, it, it, it has been quite striking. Well, what was funny was that, you know, at uh, CFR, you got a question about sort of um, radical Islam in Southeast Asia, and he actually expressed concern about Indonesia, um, mm-hmm. which was, uh, again, quite striking. Um, but yeah, I mean, the non-interference thing was interesting because he explicitly actually qualified his answer. He said that he's like, yes, you know, non-interference is an important principle and ASEAN is based on this principle. But, you know, I think we made a mistake when we allowed the killing fields to go on in Cambodia. And I don't think we should make that mistake again with the Rohingya. So I think this is more than kind of political opportunism. But you're right. I mean, you know, he is going to stick around for two years. He at least told us that that promise still stood to the Malaysian people, that he would step down and pass power to Anwar. So for whatever that's worth, but, you know, he'll be 95 by then. I can't imagine him wanting to really uh, stick on for uh, much longer, but we'll see. Um, Yeah, certainly an interesting show from uh, Mahathir uh, in New York last week. Um, So I guess let's close out with a brief discussion of, I think, one of the most fascinating speeches, which was um, North Korean Foreign Minister uh, Ri Yong-ho, which was a pretty uh, well-anticipated speech given all the diplomacy that's been going on this year. And it came a year after Donald Trump had stood up at the UN and threatened to totally destroy North Korea. Um, But now things have changed quite a bit. And I think we saw that in Ri Yong-ho's speech. Last year, he was talking about North Korea's nuclear status and nuclear deterrent, how it had accomplished a balance of power with the United States. And this year, uh, it's all about peace. It's all about sanctions relief. It's all about talks with the United States. Uh, there was a big focus on the DPRK-US process. Uh, I think Rhee knew that you know the headlines that would come out of his speech would probably end up being seen by the president. And we are sort of heading into a new round uh, of US-North Korea diplomacy this year after uh, South Korean President Moon Jae-in's efforts to defibrillate the talks after they appeared to be dead at the end of August. So Pompeo's going to go back to North Korea, and Pompeo actually met Rhee here in New York. Um, they had seemingly productive talks, and there will be a, another U.S.-North Korea summit uh, at some point. Uh, appears most likely to be before the end of the year, I'd guess probably after the midterms um, in, in November. Um, but yeah, this was uh, quite an interesting speech, Prashant. What did you, um, what did you make of what Rhee had to say? I think you, you framed it right, which is that one of the things that was striking in both uh, Rhee's speech and then also in Trump's speech was that relative to uh, last year's addresses, right, these were more sort of definitely more peaceful in nature, definitely tend to emphasize the de-escalatory nature of things. I mean, with with respect to Trump, I mean, I, you know, I was very struck by um, how not only soft his, his, his tone was with respect to North Korea, but I think subsequently at a rally, he also mentioned that, you know, he had this kind of love affair with, with Kim Jong-un and the <laughs> obsession, this obsession with, you know, the, the letters that he had received and the like. Well, yeah, I mean, the love affair thing is really... Uh... I think something that North Korea has also picked up on, um, they've been very big on emphasizing that diplomacy between the two sides has been most fruitful uh, this year when it occurs at the leader's level. They know that talking to Pompeo or, God forbid, Bolton, uh, Trump's national security advisor, is less likely to be productive on the issue of denuclearization, particularly because, as Reba bemoaned in his speech, um, they've been making unilateral demands. He referred sort of to, quite remarkably, actually, in a UN speech, he referred to the domestic political divides in the United States, uh, referring both to sort of partisan divides, but also to divisions within the administration about the proper way to pursue diplomacy with North Korea. But he was very careful to make the um, argument that, you know, Trump effectively gets it and the North Koreans have been making this point. And that's really what they're hoping for, I think, out of this upcoming summit. Well, 
think we'll leave it there for today, Prashant. We've covered a lot of ground between um, Mahathir, North Korea, India, Pakistan, and of course Trump's accusations towards China. It was a productive um, UN week uh, on the Asia front uh, here in New York, but I think we'll leave it there for today. So uh, for listeners, thanks a lot for tuning in as usual to the podcast. Uh, If you liked what you heard, make sure you hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast provider you're using. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes or Google Play, it would really be very helpful and much appreciated if you could do that. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.